episode 14 of the TruthQuest podcast, where we will tackle the Affordable Care Act, or as many prefer to call it, the Unaffordable Care Act, or just Obamacare. Please help me out by sharing the show with your friends and family. If you are having a discussion about God and evil, Fortnite, socialized medicine, the truth in general, or Obamacare, send them the link to the specific episode, or just tell them about the podcast in general. Also, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for a link to the support page. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. There we will engage in extended conversations. I also post articles related to current and past episodes as well as announce when the latest episode has been published. The easiest way to stay up to date is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or podbean.com. Okay, let's jump in. As you hopefully recall, this is the third of four healthcare-related episodes. In episode 9, we discussed the truth about healthcare in America. Then in episode 12, we talked about government-run, socialized medical systems. Today, we're going to look at the United States' effort to establish its very own government-run healthcare system known as Obamacare, passed in 2010. It would be beneficial for you to have listened to both episodes 9 and 12 for background purposes. Even though this is only episode 14, if you have listened to any of the previous episodes, you can most certainly guess where I'm going to start my critique of Obamacare. Yep, you guessed it. The Constitution. Guess what? The United States Constitution does not grant the federal government the power to force citizens to buy anything. Honestly, folks, that shouldn't be the end of the conversation in Congress. In a sane, constitutionally driven America where the president or a member of Congress floats an idea of writing a law requiring Americans to purchase health insurance, someone in the White House or a congressional colleague should have pulled out their pocket constitution and said, Sorry pal, it ain't in here. We do not have the power to do that. The idea should have died a quick and quiet death. Think about it. If Obamacare or any of the hundreds of federal agencies and thousands of government regulations are constitutional, Why did the Founding Fathers bother to list the enumerated powers? Obamacare exemplifies in so many ways just how far we as a country have strayed from the founding principles of the United States. I stand by this despite the Supreme Court's 2013 opinion. One of the reasons there are three branches of government is so there is balance of power when it comes to determining the constitutionality of a law. Believe it or not, the Supreme Court's opinion on the constitutionality of a law is not supreme. More on this point in a future episode. The father of the Constitution, James Madison, argued that states have a responsibility to respond to unwarrantable or merely unpopular federal acts, which included, quote, a refusal to cooperate with officers of the Union. Since the Republicans in Congress refused to defund Obamacare, the job is left to the states to repeal or ignore this monstrosity. At the end of the day, the individual states chose to join the federal Union and created the United States, lowercase u, lowercase s. The states created the federal government, and if the federal government starts to behave tyrannically, the states can and should nullify their efforts. In addition to the Supreme Court, the concept of nullification will be covered in a future episode of the podcast as well. Our founding documents say that our right to life is inalienable. When the government institutes programs that crowd out the private sectors, make vast portions of the population dependent upon it for items such as health care, 
it is in direct violation of our rights set out in our founding documents. If you are an 88-year-old and want a knee replacement, that is exercising your pursuit of happiness. If the government effectively takes over health care and denies your request for a new knee because you are deemed too old and it is determined that those funds should be allocated elsewhere, that violates your inalienable right to pursue happiness. With that said, let's dive into the meat of the debate. As I see it, there are four things wrong with Obamacare. Number one, the way the law was drafted. Number two, the way the law was passed. Number three, the way the law was upheld by the Supreme Court. And four, the consequences. So let's start with number one, the way the law was drafted and sold to the American people. Obama and the Democrats lied about virtually every component of the bill. Do you remember this? But what we will do is we'll have negotiations televised on C-SPAN so that people can see who is making arguments on behalf of their constituents and who are making arguments on behalf of the drug companies and the insurance companies. What about this one? I'm going to have all the negotiations around a big table. We'll have doctors and nurses and hospital administrators, insurance companies, drug companies. They'll get a seat at the table. They just won't be able to buy every chair. But what we will do is we'll have the negotiations televised on C-SPAN so that people can see who is making arguments on behalf of their constituents and who is making arguments on behalf of drug companies and insurance companies. And so that approach, I think, is going to allow the people to stay involved in this process, end quote. Both of those were President Obama. That was a lie. The entire bill was drafted behind closed doors and without Republican input, despite Obama's repeated promise to broadcast the debate on C-SPAN. Below is a list of other lies told to the American people by Obama and the Democrats in order to pass Obamacare. If you like your health care plan, you'll keep your health care plan, period. In reality, millions of Americans had their health insurance policies canceled because of Obamacare. How about this one? That means that no matter how we reform health care, we will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. In reality, many health plans sold in the exchanges offer a very narrow network of service providers that severely limit patients' choice of doctors. It was estimated by the Health Resources and Services Administration that there will be a shortage of between 55,000 and 150,000 physicians by the year 2020. That last prediction was made before the law was even passed. How about this one? In an Obama administration, we'll lower premiums by up to $2,500 for a typical family per year. In reality, because of the mandates and regulations, premiums are significantly higher than, than before the law was passed. It does not take a rocket scientist to recognize that if insurance companies are forced by law to cover more ailments and all pre-existing conditions, the cost to the consumer will increase. On top of higher premiums, deductibles are also much higher than they were prior to the passage of the law. How about this one? For the 85 and 90% of Americans who already have health insurance, this thing's already happened, and their only impact is that the insurance is stronger, better, and more secure than it was before. Full stop. That's it. They don't have to worry about anything else. When in reality, listen to what I just said about lie one, two, and three. How about this one? Under my plan, no family making less than $250,000 a year will see any form of tax increase. When in reality, Obamacare contains 18 separate tax hikes, fees, and penalties, many of which heavily impact the middle class. How about this one? 
I will not sign a plan that adds one dime to our deficits, either now or in the future. When in reality, Obamacare's new spending is unsustainable, and within three years, it was already running well over uh, project costs. Big surprise. How about this one? Whatever ideas exist in terms of bending the cost curve and starting to reduce costs for families, businesses, and governments, those elements are in the bill. And when in reality, health spending is rising still and is projected to grow at an average of 5.8% through the year 2022. How about this one? I will protect Medicare. When in reality, Obamacare cuts Medicare spending while at the same time expanding enrollment. How about this one? I will sign a universal health care bill into law by the end of my first term as president that will cover every American. When in reality, millions of Americans remained uninsured. How about this one? So this law means more choice, more competition, lower cost for millions of Americans. When in reality, Obamacare has not increased insurer competition or consumer choice. Premium rates and deductibles are higher. How about this one? Obama repeatedly denied that the bill was not a tax because he knew if he ne- it would never pass if it was represented as such. When asked by ABC's George Stephanopoulos, how is this not a tax, Obama responded, a responsibility to get health insurance is not a tax increase. When in reality, before the Supreme Court, Obama's attorneys essentially argued both sides, that the, that the law was a tax and it was not one. In the end, Chief Justice Roberts made up his own definition. More on that later. And how about this one? There are no death panels in the bill. When in reality, it's called rationing, which happens in every nation with socialized medicine. Listen to episode number 12 for an explanation on that. In the Obamacare law, it is called the Independent Payments Advisory Board. So what were the Democrats afraid of? I think you could say it was the truth. At one point during the so-called debate over Obamacare, an amendment was introduced by Senator Bunning, a Republican from Kentucky, that required the health care reform bill and estimates of its cost to be available to the public 72 hours before the final vote. That amendment was rejected in committee by a vote of 11 to 12. This amendment would have given senators and the American people the opportunity to analyze and understand what was being voted on by the committee. Democrats did not want the truth about Obamacare to get out. Okay, now let's talk about how the law was passed. The portrayal of the American people on the part of the congressmen that voted on for this bill is truly amazing. None of them read the bill before they voted for it. In addition, bribes and kickbacks were promised to states whose senators were not inclined to vote for the bill. Research the Cornhusker kickback, special tax benefits for union members, and the Louisiana Purchase. Democratic Congressman John Conyers mocked those who had the audacity to suggest that members of Congress should read the bill before they voted on it when he said, quote, I love these members that get up and say, read the bill. What good is reading the bill if it's a thousand pages and you don't have two days and two lawyers to find out what it means after you've read the bill? How about Democratic Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, one of the more despicable members of Congress, when she unapologetically said, quote, we have to pass the bill to see what's in it, end quote. Pelosi was clearly indicated the Democrats' kamikaze mission mentality regarding the passage of Obamacare against the will of the people when she said this, 
Quote, we'll go through the gate. If the gates close, we'll go over the fence. If the fence is too high, we'll pull Walt in, she said. She continued, if that doesn't work, we'll parachute in. But we're going to get health care reform passed for the American people, end quote. They did just that by bribing senators, offering exemptions and generous subsidies to friendly constituents, and using budget reconciliation to secure final passage of the bill. In Federalist Number 62, James Madison clairvoyantly said this, quote, It will be of little avail to the people that the laws are made by men of their own choice, if the laws be so voluminous that they cannot be read, or so incoherent that they cannot be understood, end quote. As I mentioned, the bill was ultimately passed without a single Republican vote. The Democrats used the budget reconciliation method rather than being put to a full vote on the House floor. The vehicle of reconciliation is a parliamentary procedure that fast-tracks budget measures. Why use a budget procedure to pass legislation that would effectively take over one-fifth of the economy? Because the bill did not have public support, that's why. Because the law, if passed, would never have survived a Senate filibuster, which requires 60 votes to end. Because support for the bill by Democratic senators was waning. The late Democratic Senator Robert Byrd from West Virginia argued that reconciliation was an abuse of power. He said, the, quote, the misuse of the arcane process of reconciliation, a process intended for deficit reduction to enact substantial policy changes, is an undemocratic disservice to our people and to the Senate's institutional role, end quote. But Majority Leader Harry Reid who, along with Nancy Pelosi, is one of the more despicable and unethical members of Congress in recent history, could not have cared less. What about how the law was upheld by the Supreme Court? The most accurate way to describe the Supreme Court's action in the NFIB v. Sebelius case, the Obamacare case, was they put politics over the Constitution, which is the exact opposite of their charter. Chief Justice Roberts essentially legislated from the bench. Despite repeated promises that this bill was not a tax, one of Obama's administration's arguments before the Supreme Court was just that. It is a tax. Therefore, it is constitutional under con Congress's right to levy taxes. Instead of sending the bill back to Congress, Chief Justice John Roberts essentially rewrote the law, circumventing Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution, which says, All bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives. The Obamacare bill was originated in the Senate. Because of the court's rewriting of the law, many call it SCOTUS care. SCOTUS is an acronym for Supreme Court of the United States. George Will wrote this about the decision. The most durable damage from Thursday's decision is not the perpetuation of the ACA, Obamacare, which can be undone by what created it, legislative action. The paramount injury is the court's embrace of a duty to ratify and even facilitate lawless discretion exercise by administrative agencies and the executive branch generally. The decision also resulted from Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr.'s embrace of the doctrine that courts, owing vast deference to the purposes of the political branches, are obligated to do whatever is required to make a law efficient, regardless of how the law is written. What Roberts does, by way of, to be polite, creative construing, Justice Anthony Scalia, dissenting, calls it somersaults of statutory interpretation, is legislating, not judging. 
Will went on to call the decision judicial dereliction with anti-constitutional consequences. We are, says William R. Marr from the Institute for Justice, becoming, quote, a country in which all the branches of government work in tandem to achieve policy outcomes instead of checking one another to protect individual rights. The Robert Doctrine facilitates what has been a century progressivism's central objective, the overthrow of the Constitution's architecture. The separation of powers impedes progressivism by preventing government from wielding uninhibited power, end quote. Here's how Mike Cannon from the Cato Institute, a healthcare expert, reacted. The Supreme Court allowed itself to be intimidated. The court rewrote Obamacare to save it. In doing so, the court has sent a dangerous message to future administrations. The court today validated President Obama's massive power grab, allowing him to tax, borrow, and spend $700 billion that no Congress ever authorized. This established a president that could be let other presidents modify, amend, or suspend any enacted law at his or her whim. Chief Justice Roberts completely altered the contextual meaning of the law in order to push it over its most obvious hurdle, state participation. Justice Scalia railed against Roberts' opinion, saying most Americans see plain language as an undebatable topic. He pointed out that Congress wrote, quote, exchange established by the state seven different times in the law, but Roberts basically took on the role of legislator and applied a broad and ambiguous interpretation that assumes Congress made a typo. As Scalia writes, quote, what are the odds, do you think, that the same slip of the pen occurred in separate, separate places, end quote. Finally, let's talk about the effects of the law. This is the stuff that really pisses me off because the Democrats who voted for Obamacare knew what would happen. All they had to do was look at this current state or current or past socialized government-run healthcare systems. If you want to get a sense of what they look like, please listen to episode 12, where I mentioned a conclusion reached by the National Center for Policy Analysis in their analysis of socialized medical systems. And they said, quote, can the nationalized universal systems of Britain, Canada, or anywhere else improve on this, the U.S. healthcare system? No, but they can ruin our healthcare by following the policies of countries where medical treatment is far below the American standard, end quote. Effect number one, the federal government's control of our lives. Obamacare and any government-run socialized medical system allows the government to regulate every aspect of our lives because virtually everything we do impacts our health, and since they are paying for our health care, it's not a stretch that they will dictate behaviors such as how much you exercise, your smoking habit, your alcohol consumption, the amount of sun exposure you get, where you live, what you drive, how fast you drive, what you eat. I mean, it's really endless. What's next? Force us to buy burial insurance? Why not? They already force us to buy health insurance. Why doesn't the federal government mandate that we buy auto insurance, homeowners insurance? The states require the former and mortgage companies require the latter. Where does the federal government get off requiring us to buy health insurance? Effect number two, favoritism. Over 1,000 Obamacare waivers were granted within months of the bill's passage, mostly to constituents of Democratic congressmen. At one point, 20% of the waivers were provided to Nancy Pelosi's district alone. If this is the greatest piece of legislation in history, why are waivers necessary? Senator Michael Lee summed up the waiver phenomenon nicely when he said, quote, I love the argument that we should fund Obamacare because it's the law of the land. 
then why has Obama carved out numerous exemptions, end quote? Effect number three, lost coverage. It is estimated that 20 million people lost their current health insurance because it was, became too expensive given all the new mandates in Obamacare. Effect number four, expanded taxation power. This law gives the federal government essentially unlimited taxation power and amounted to the largest tax increase in world history. Effect number five, decline in the quality of health care. Ultimately, the quality of health care will decline. See episode 12. Thousands of doctors retired as they realized that they could no longer make a living serving more patients for less money. Medicaid was dropped by doctors' offices due to low and delayed reimbursements. Rationing of care will always occur just like it did in the Veterans Affairs healthcare system and in every country that has socialized medicine. Bureaucrats will dictate healthcare decisions on our behalf rather than our doctor. Death panels will be established for end-of-life decisioning and a massive bureaucracy will reign over us. Effect number six, backdoor single-payer. Obamacare will lead to a single-payer, government-run healthcare system. First, private insurance companies will go bankrupt as they are forced to charge higher and higher premiums in order to cover all the new mandates. Subsequently, few Americans will purchase their policies, choosing instead to pay the fine. Once the private insurance companies go out of business, guess who will be there with a single-payer system? Washington, D.C. Need more proof? Look no further than the employer mandate, which requires large employers to offer health benefits. However, they are not required to cover spouses or dependents. Where will they end up? In the public exchanges. The employer mandate also offers employers the option of paying a $2,000 fine per employee in lieu of offering them benefits. Because $2,000 is a lot less than the cost of the benefits, it's anticipated that most employers would choose the fine. Where will all these employees end up? In the public exchanges, government to the rescue. Effect number seven, it's anti-growth and anti-capitalism. When I wrote my book, Critical Thinking, and was researching the chapter on Obamacare, I met a friend for coffee. He was explaining to me how much time he had spent in recent days trying to avoid the impact of Obamacare on his business. He had to juggle his workforce in such a way as to avoid having more than 50 full-time employees on his payroll or the Obamacare mandate would kick in and require him to buy health insurance for them. What kind of legislative body purposely straps its constituents with a law that forces business owners to deliberately look for ways not to grow their business? The law purposely stifles economic growth. Effect number eight, it is a fiscal train wreck with a suicidal business model. I mean, really, folks, it's illogical, it's anti-common sense, and it's irresponsible. You're forcing insurance companies to accept people with pre-existing conditions. This is no different than forcing insurance companies to issue a car insurance policy after someone has been involved in an accident or forcing them to issue a homeowner's policy after a house fire. It's illogical, and it's willfully negligent. Forcing insurance companies to cover children up until the age of 26, too. I mean, seriously. Question for skeptics. Why would the Democrats need to go through such extreme measures to pass what has been represented as the greatest piece of legislation in a generation? One possibility is Democrats do not trust the American people to think for themselves. To them, we don't know what's good for us. A June 2014 Quinnipiac University poll found that 55% of Americans still opposed Obamacare. Another possibility is that socialized medicine has been 
liberals' wet dream for over a hundred years. If power and control is the ultimate endgame, what difference does it make who you hurt in the process? The ends justify the means. Question for skeptics. Why is an overhaul necessary when using Democrats' own numbers, almost 90% of the population had health insurance at the time? A final question for skeptics. Why would you believe that the federal government can efficiently manage one-fifth of the economy when they can't even deliver the mail, manage Amtrak, or administer Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security without incurring billions upon billions of losses each year and presiding over epic levels of waste, fraud, and abuse of the system? Hell, they couldn't even launch a functioning website to manage the Obamacare law. I'm no fan of soon-to-be former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, but his quote about Obamacare is a beautiful piece of rhetoric. He said the federal government will run health care, quote, with the compassion of the IRS, the efficiency of the post office, and the incompetence of Katrina, end quote. As I conclude this episode, let's run Obamacare through what I call the TruthQuest filter which is simply a series of questions to evaluate a proposal. The questions are, what is the problem we are trying to solve? And clearly define it. What are the possible solutions? Does a possible solution apply equally to everyone? What does history, common sense, or logic tell us about the proposed solution? And what are the consequences of the proposed solution? My contention is that if every piece of legislation or policy proposals were run through these series of questions, and legislative bodies actually debated the responses to them, we would have a demonstratively fewer laws passed and much smaller government footprint in our lives. So step number one, it's clearly to find the problem for which you're trying to solve. We were told there were supposedly 30 or 40 million uninsured Americans, and we must fix the broken healthcare system because it is worse than many other industrialized countries, and for good measure, they reminded us over and over again that the evil insurance companies should not be allowed to prey on the poor and ignore those with pre-existing conditions. Now you ask, is there agreement on this point? If yes, you move on to step two. If no, you stay with the status quo. The answer, of course, would be no, because none of these claims were true. The estimates of the number of uninsured was not accurate. The American healthcare system was the envy of the world, and the evil insurance company's claims was a typical straw man, empty class warfare rhetoric employed by the left because they cannot win the debate on its merits. Despite there being no agreement, let's continue walking through the filter. What solutions were available? The only solution the Democrats offered was a federal takeover of 20% of the economy, a socialized, medical, government-run, single-payer healthcare system. Or as one commentator said, Obamacare is analogous to cutting off the patient's leg because he has a broken toe. So then you ask the question, does the solution apply equally to everyone? Well, no, it doesn't. There are numerous carve-outs, exceptions, and waivers and subsidies built into the law as written, and many other changes were made via executive order. So you say, is there agreement on this point? If yes, you move on to step three. And if no, the stat you stay with the status quo. So again, no agreement would have been reached here. Despite that, let's go through the filter. Step three would be, what does history, common sense, or logic teach us about the agreed-upon solution? Well, those of you who have listened to episode 12 understand that socialized medicine always results in more dependency on the part of the people on government providing health care, rationing of care, or in this case, death panels, fewer treatment options, longer wait times for doctor visits, and less experimentation and innovation for new tre treatment techniques. So here again, 
If we reached step three of the filter and we were honest, the process would stop in its track. But for demonstration purposes, let's continue to the final step, which is what are the consequences of the change, both intended and unintended? So the likely outcome of Obamacare is a single-payer, government-run healthcare system, a government control of 20% of the economy, higher insurance premiums and higher deductibles, limited choice of your doctor, shortages of physicians and overall worse care, the doctor shortage void would likely be filled with physicians' assistants and nurses who have less training and less expertise, and a stifling of job growth as small businesses, the largest employer in America, struggle to keep their workforce below 50 employees in order to avoid the mandates. If there are potential consequences that you cannot live with, then you go back to step two. You just do no harm. You may be thinking, okay, Sean, you've dismantled government-run socialized medical systems in general and eviscerated Obamacare specifically. Hey, it's my podcast. I can put words in your mouth. So to continue your thought, you ask, what can be done? Well, don't worry. In episode 17, The Truth About Healthcare Reform, I intend to answer those questions.